0: we need to start looking at political science through the lens of subsidiarity and ask ourselves the question, how do we prevent what has happened over the last hundred years, Mm. which is that wherever you look, governments have been on a one way trajectory in terms of their scale. They've been growing Mm. and growing and growing and decision-making has been ever more centralized. What do we need to do in terms of the ways in which we articulate our policy polities, our democracies, how should we articulate them, our constitutions, our institutional structures, to enshrine and protect subsidiarity? Uh-huh. That, for me, is the single most interesting task ahead of us in political science. Uh-huh. People tend to get obsessed with how to avoid uh, cheating in elections or how to prevent um, pork barreling in uh-huh. legislation processes or how to prevent corruption. I don't think that's where the attention should be. Those things follow naturally from centralization and increasingly increasing scale of government. Mm-hmm. We ought to be applying our mind to how localization can be fostered, decentralization, subsidiarity, and then those problems will go away or at least moderate.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Again, that's Wolf NYC, W O L F N Y C dot com. Nick Hudson, welcome back to the What Is Money show. Great to be
0: back, Robert, and hello to
1: all your listeners. Great to have you again. Um, you were on, I guess it's probably three to four or five months ago, um, and we had a, a very, very popular episode together um, where we walked through kind of the top. 20 untruths of the whole COVID hysteria. Um, and then touching on some other topics that uh the audience really really resonated with the audience, so I had to get you back on. Just by way of a quick intro, uh, you are the chairman of Pan Data, which is an organization founded in May 2020 to fight state-imposed lockdowns. Um what I mean, I guess maybe to kick off, like what has changed in the the COVID narrative or the COVID world post-COVID world I guess we're in now since our last conversation have there been any major uh, events worldwide of countries or companies kind of pivoting on their their stance towards this entire
0: episode yeah I think the major area of movement has been the accumulation of um, the sense that there's something wrong with uh, vaccines. Um, And you see it at multiple levels. You've got countries reversing the imposition of vaccine mandates, in some cases even terminating their entire vaccine program. And of course, none of that is reported in mainstream media. Um, Switzerland was the latest country to do so, which is quite phenomenal given that it's really at the epicenter of the whole uh, vaccine rollout program uh, being the host of um, the World Health Organization of GABI and CEPI and all these organizations that that are engaged in in this whole pandemic preparedness um, strategy. And so it's quite significant that Switzerland has done that. And then recently also Australia uh, banned the use of uh, the AstraZeneca vaccines, which they had once mandated, which is a very interesting thing I mean if you if, if that doesn't cause a regulator to pause and think again huh. you know about the whole question of mandating any treatments whatsoever then I don't know what will yep. so I think that's been the biggest uh, story has been the continual erosion of public trust in the vaccines and in the um, the mandates in particular and that I, I think is a one-way train it's only going to gather momentum. Yeah, that one is
1: particularly telling. So Australia was at one point mandating the AstraZeneca vaccine, and it is now banned. It. So what, like, is there a reasoning given there? Like, what what would cause such a, a, a an extreme pivot on the the position?
0: Uh, the the reasoning is, yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's the official reasoning, and then there's the real story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the official reasoning is that. Uh, the the new variants, it's not effective against the new variants, you know, um, but the reality is that there was, there, there two parts to it. The one is that AstraZeneca wasn't safe, um, was associated with an, an extraordinary number of adverse events. Um, and, and the second one is, of course, that uh, priority has been given to the mRNA vaccines of Pfizer and Moderna. Mm. So, there's been detectable for the longest time now um, a a general push in the direction of, in particular, Pfizer, um, trying to push the um, whole story of their vaccines needing to be prioritized and uh, spread around the world, even to places that are fundamentally unaffected by COVID, such as poor African countries that have but far more pressing things to spend money on than a vaccine against uh, a disease which is really, for the, the, the vast majority of their population, nothing more than a cold. Mm.
1: Is, is Australia
0: then still mandating Pfizer and Moderna? Is it just the AstraZeneca that they banned? No, no. They're, they're, so the question of where they're mandated and so on in Australia is a little bit uh, grey for me. I'm not too mm-hmm. sure exactly which how they've articulated the mandates and in which um in which sectors and states and so on but it's certainly been a very high pressure location with uh, a huge um uh uptake reflecting that pressure very hard to get by in australia um without taking a vaccine Hmm. wow yeah this seems
1: uh, it's just a sign of the times i guess right where one within the span of a couple of years something that's being mandated becomes banned it just calls into yep. question the in, the integrity of mandating as you said mandating anything at all right like mandated based on what data or yep. what what yep. purpose if something can be over you know completely reversed a couple of years later it would yeah. just make me hesitant about all mandates, right? as if I wasn't hesitant hesitant enough
0: about all forms of mandate. This would uh, certainly reinforce that position. Yeah, and, and this one is particularly ludicrous because if, you know they've emphasized all the time what's known as relative risk reduction. The, the the initial completely false claim coming out of the totally fraudulent Pfizer phase three trials was that the vaccines were ninety five percent effective, but. That's not the standard way of approaching the question of whether you should roll out a vaccine to a broad population. If you were looking at that, you'd look at the absolute risk reduction. What is Mm -hmm. the absolute reduction in your chances of dying if you've taken the vaccine versus if you haven't? And you would compare that you'd use that calculation to infer a number needed to treat how many people you'd have to vaccinate in order to prevent one death, and you'd compare that to the number of deaths that would you expect to see as a result of adverse events and that long accepted framework for assessing vaccines in a public health context has been completely abandoned nobody's referencing those numbers because the numbers look make the program look astonishingly foolish mm. um and that's even before we take into account the fact that they're nowhere near 95 percent effective uh yeah i I, th- I think that there's so many frauds built into the way that vaccines are tested and uh, built into the actual processes that were uh, deployed by the pharmaceutical firms when they did their trials, that it's, it's really difficult to make a case for vaccine efficacy. I, I just don't think there really is one in the case of the, the MRNA vaccines. Mm. Uh, you know, there's so many examples. If if you, if, if, if I started talking about what was wrong with the Pfizer phase three trials we would just have that as just one, uh, two hour podcast. Hmm. So it might, might be worthwhile just picking out a couple of things. You know, people, people don't fully understand that in the intervention arm, that is, so, so, which is to say the, the one where the people are giving the vaccines and not the, not the placebo, they had more deaths, more hospitalizations and more people with COVID like symptoms that that's, that's a fact. Okay. Well. <laughs> um, what they what they managed to engineer in a very uh weird way is that there were more positive PCR tests amongst the people who had the placebo. So just in in sorry, more positive PCR tests in the company of COVID like symptoms. Mm. But it was the vaccine arm that had the greater COVID symptoms. So, you know, what exactly are you what clinical endpoint are we talking about it you know a PCR test is not a clinical endpoint uh-huh. you know, being, being sick being hospitalized or dying those are clinical endpoints and if you if your group treated by the this therapy at more sickness more hospitalization and more death how are we making any claims about efficacy at all right then there are process problems as well Brooke Jackson's case uh Yes, yeah, she was the whistleblower from Ventavia, one of the companies that were uh, the subcontracted to conduct the trials. Pfizer's defense there wasn't that they didn't commit a fraud. Pfizer's defense was that they ordered up, they offered up the fraud that the Department of Defense had asked them to. Um, when the case was dismissed eventually, it was dismissed on the grounds that the, the fraud happened after the contracting event. Not that there wasn't a fraud, hmm. so it, it's it's fascinating to watch. Um, and people don't know this; this hasn't been taken on properly by the regulatory authorities. The mainstream media are not reporting on it, so the whole thing is just an absurdity from beginning to end. It's not like there's actually a strong argument being mounted by the other side. There isn't. Hmm. Wow! What can you um, get? briefly, help me
1: understand the difference between relative and absolute risk reduction is is the relative
0: I yeah mean, so yeah please. If, let, let's let's suppose you had a you have a very low risk of dying from a a particular disease. Let's say it's at ten in a million, one in a hundred thousand chance, okay and the vaccine reduces it to one in a million. Then you've gone from 10 in a million to one in a million. Your absolute risk reduction is nine in a million. Very very small risk reduction. Uh-huh. But proportionately, you've gone from 10 to one, which means you've had a 90% relative risk reduction. Uh-huh. Gotcha. So they say it's 90% effective. <clears throat> but of course, all you need is for there to be 20 in a million chance of dying as a result of the, the vaccine intervention. And then uh-huh. you your absolute risk is absent. Has actually gone up. So your uh, the efficacy against the the disease might be ninety percent, but you're foolish if you take it. Right, right. The cost benefit is upside down, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's that's where you know you, if you so in the case of a uh, a, a disease that uh, only kills one in hundred thousand, which is true, probably the, about where the risk is for the vast majority of people on the planet with respect to COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because for two reasons, one, it's very low risk for young people. And it's also very low risk for recovered people. And of course, a huge proportion of the world's population has been infected by and recovered from COVID. So they're not at any substantial risk. So if you're at one in a hundred thousand chance of risk, if you're infected, you need, you need to, sorry, uh, uh, that's a risk of death. If you're infected, you would need to vaccinate a hundred thousand people to prevent a death. Right. Wow. And um, that's the kind of, and that that's to prevent a death from COVID. Never mind how many deaths you cause because of adverse events. And it's this kind of mathematics that's avoided by by using the relative risk um, construct and talking only in terms about the risk with respect to the disease that is treated, and mm. ignoring risk with respect to the adverse events from the vaccination process mm. itself. Interesting, Uh, more of this kind of metric management
1: type. We see this a lot in central banks, too, right? Just how they're always tweaking the metrics to suit whatever narrative uh, is being promulgated. Um, You mentioned offline to me that there is actually a case being developed or perhaps being carried out against Pfizer um, something related to stopping or suspending the rollout of vaccines in South Africa. Um, yes. what is going
0: on with that, that particular case? Yeah, it's, it's the most promising case. I think that I've seen anywhere in the world at the moment. Um, an, an organization called FASA, uh, Freedom Alliance, South Africa has, um, um, brought a case against, the uh, the minister of health and others, various of the regulatory organizations. Um, compiling a huge amount of evidence for that raises concerns about the um the the, the risk reward benefit the benefit the risk reward balance for the uh, Pfizer vaccine which is the one that's been rolled out in South Africa to the general population the only one and it's a it's a very thorough put well put together case um and the establishment mainstream media went completely you know, Moggy over mm. over the salt case it's uh, they, they've been smearing the doctors who produced affidavits and all of that good stuff. Of course they never contradict the 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 evidence which is now publicly available um that they, they, they can't they can't come against any of that they've got no strong points to make against that evidence mm. so what they resort to is calling the doctors who produce the affidavits names um <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, as with any of our institutions, our judiciary has become uh, fundamentally captured. If not by the COVID narrative, then indeed by uh, you know money, mm-hmm. um, quite simply. And so it really depends on which judge you get and where the judge is in terms of the COVID narrative on the day. Um, because we've seen cases with very solid evidence be thrown out and um, all sorts of political pressure being brought to bear on the advocates involved in bringing the cases and so on, you know, threats to have them disbarred and that kind of thing. And so it, it really will depend on the, on the day. Uh, I think the, the case is certainly strong. These vaccines should never have been approved. So suspension is warranted. Um, and what's completely clear, not just in South Africa, but in many parts of the world is the extent to which the regulators didn't actually apply their minds or review evidence. They, they just went with this kind of story that, oh, well, the FDA has done it. And of course, in the case of the FDA, that's a totally captured organization with Mm -hmm. close links to the pharmaceutical firms, huge portion of its revenue coming from those pharmaceutical firms um and they didn't apply their minds but mm-hmm. yeah so you've got the the local regulators not having done proper work there's no they've got they can't provide evidence for having asked the right questions that are that any sensible regulator would have asked where is where is that case headed is this
1: would this be monetary re- retribution for some of the
0: victims affected or the people affected by these, these products, the, ca- um, the cases, the case is heading just for a suspension of their use pending further investigation. And I think that that investigation would then be steered towards proper science being done. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I think once the general fraud is exposed, all of these liability protections are invalidated, and that mm-hmm. can happen—not just Pfizer, but everybody in the chain of command up to to litigation. Wow!
1: So that's potentially a very big. I assume too, if that case—the case against Pfizer—succeeds um, in South Africa, that would open the gateway for other cases in other parts of the world, also invalidating those liability protections potentially.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, if if we don't eventually end up with Pfizer being sued for every cent that it has, Pfizer and its insurers being sued for every cent that it has, it will only be because there's been a complete collapse in the apparatus of uh, uh, democratic governance. Um, there's no, I can't see a, a trajectory that doesn't involve the 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 total uh, extirpation of Pfizer, and unless there is um, you know, widespread corruption. Now there could, there could well be such corruption. We've seen enough of it already to know that our governments are not actually doing things in our interests and are willfully and actively taking steps to prevent truth from coming out, to, to lie to their citizens, to impose costs on them without benefits. So it's not a foregone conclusion, but I think in my mind, the only reason why Pfizer will continue to exist as a as a, a, a solvent entity is corruption. Well, that but, certainly seems like it's in the
1: cards recently. Um, um, well, I, I hope that that case goes positively against Pfizer. That definitely, they, they have to be held to account, right? I mean, with absent the the imposition of liability then um i, I don't know i just it doesn't seem like anything will change and we'll probably just have a repeat of this entire saga the next time there is a an alleged pandemic um
0: yeah the limited liability thing you know it, an interesting feature brought to my attention was how did that you know in the reagan era did we have this rollout of liability uh, li- liability limitations for Uh, pharmaceutical companies with respect to vaccines and it's very interesting the argument they made was an argument that has gotten the rest of us censored they made the argument that look vaccines are a a public good but they're inherently dangerous inherently dangerous Mm. and therefore we need liability protection now one of our first uh, attacks from a censorship perspective was when an author in a paper published on our website made that exact point, that vaccines are inherently dangerous. Mm. So, you know, the the premise of the liability limitation is the very statement mm. that now causes people to be, to have their videos removed from YouTube.
1: Wow, so yeah, you <laughs> what a crazy world, right? you're restating the truth that justified the liability limitations on vaccine manufacturers and you were censored for that restatement. Yeah. Um, interesting. So <laughs>
0: it's an, it's an example of retroactive censorship, really. Mm. Now we, we finding this increasingly that material dating back to 10 yeah it can be 10 years. Um, is suddenly deplatformed, and YouTube are probably the worst culprits. My favourite example there was: um, there's a doc- documentary called Ukraine on Fire, uh, dating back to 2014, which sat quite comfortably on YouTube all the way until the beginning of the invasion by Putin. And um, and all of a sudden, that that documentary violated community guidelines and had to be removed you know, nine years after it had gone up. And again, there was no allegation that any of its content was false. It's a a very factual documentary with lots of footage and interviews of people Mm. at the time. You know, I'm talking 2014, the time of the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And um, so so nobody's alleged that anything in it was false. It just casts NATO in a bad light Mm. and the US government in a bad light at a time when they were trying to represent that they weren't actually involved in a proxy war against Russia. Um, so it had to be retroactively censored. Wow, so what we so what do you think is actually happening
1: there? It's just that the conflict in Russia and Ukraine begins, NATO or the US government is revising their public relations strategy and they're going
0: through content that could threaten whatever narrative is being pushed. Yeah, the public relations strategy crumbles if you watch that documentary. I mean, it's still av- it's still available. I'd encourage people to go and watch it on Odyssey. Hmm. Uh, I think it's available on Rumble as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's just impossible to accept the mainstream media narrative on the Ukraine, which is very simplistic. The one promoted by George Soros, which is sort of you know one morning Vladimir Putin woke woke up after a bad night's sleep and decided to invade Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Got out of bed on the wrong side and got cross. Um, some, this very simplistic projection that it's all about Putin bad, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, of course, there's a massive historical context uh, treaties not upheld, uh, intervention in democratic process by Western nations, notably the United States, um, dating back you know, to the time of the ousting of a democratically elected government And I think it was 2013. could it could be wrong on my dates Mm. and then an enormous amount of pressure on russia with dozens of bioweapons labs being established in the ukraine uh talk of ukraine joining nato in violation of previous um previously negotiated settlements and so on plus of course what was essentially a, a a a low level but consistent genocide against uh uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians in 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 eastern Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a lot of yeah, and I'm, and I'm not saying at all. I'm not a. This doesn't make you a, a Putin apologist pointing this kind of thing out. Mm-hmm. It just it's just an illustration of the extent to which the propagandized narratives have to be propped up by removal of facts and reality from the the discussion.
1: Yeah, it's somewhat remarkable that people would even accept such a simplified narrative, right, Putin bad, because it's, I mean, where in reality are things ever that black and white, yeah. you know, there's always this long typically morally complicated and nuanced contention between two parties. Um, It's just, I don't know, I maybe it's uh, a testament to the dumbing down of the population that they've been programmed by certain types of um, television content maybe to accept these more simplified narratives or maybe maybe they're just not thinking about it at all just taking it at face value but I mean for me it's just it's a it's a red flag right if someone presents it, anyone doesn't have to be a media narrative can someone just sharing a story with me about how someone did this one bad thing and they were completely the victim or in the right like well things typically aren't that
0: cut and dry um yeah and i think it goes beyond what people are fed in the media stretching back further in time to what they're fed in the education system um there's an incredible emphasis on what essentially amounts to compliance um independence of thought and critical thinking are not haven't been taught in schools for years and so you've got a population upon which this these media stories land um and they're prone to accepting what the talking man on TV says, mm-hmm. and if you combine that with the incredible concentration of the ownership of media assets, and the incredible concentration of the ownership of these of the the censorship um, apparatus form mm-hmm. of these, there's a massive industry now in fact checking, and fact checkers are, are owned in a very concentrated way hundreds of thousands of people employed basically to gainsay anything that goes against specific false narratives. Um, when you put all of that together, you you can see why it is that people end up with this kind of uh, set of completely false ideas in their heads about any number of topics mm. in current affairs. Yes, it really is this... I mean, it sounds
1: conspiratorial to call it a psychological operation or a psyop, but indeed that's what it appears to be. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res, three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock.
0: Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back?
1: <laughs> so with Health, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. You mentioned offline to me too that this... It's interesting that this censorship narrative, perhaps, seems to be cracking open for some people, um, or at least that people are acknowledging now that censorship exists. Whereas, you know, a couple over the course of the past couple of years, it was even that just saying that censorship existed was considered to be a conspiracy theorist angle. Um, obviously, that seems to be a positive development. Maybe people are actually waking up to the realities of of top-down censorship what yeah. what evidence is is inspiring your your view that 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 narrative is is cracking apart
0: yesterday for example um Elon Musk had had an interview with a BBC journalist so this is the British Broadcasting Corporation which is a state owned broadcaster that has done nothing for the last 3 years but pump out wall to wall propaganda um yeah almost everything it's done with respect to covid has been involved in propelling a, a false story of one in, in one way or another. Mm. Uh, so he has this interview. It's washed by, I think at last count, 14 million people mm. worldwide. And he absolutely wipes the floor with this journalist. The journalist comes at him saying, ah, oh, you know, Twitter's now harboring hate speech, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And Musk just pushes back on him and says, Give me an example, give me an example. And the guy just crumbles, completely crumbles. Um, and of course, you know what what Twitter's been doing is labeling organizations like BBC and National Public Radio (NPR) in America as state-funded broadcasters, and they don't like that label, even though that is quite clearly what they are. Mm-hmm. And what they've done is quite clearly project propaganda. Uh, that they, they really don't like that label. So you get these announcements now. From NPR, that they're withdrawing from Twitter, they're no longer going to operate a Twitter account in protest against this horrible <laughs> statement, which happens to be entirely true. Um, so it's it's starting to have an effect, and uh, the, these events don't happen without people noticing. Certainly, mm-hmm. 14 million people watching is an awful lot. Yes. Uh, so I think the story is now becoming. Above, above, it's, it's becoming. It, it's it's getting onto the radar for more and more people, and uh, it's quite clear now to to an increasingly um, alert minority that the censorship has been widespread and deep and takes many forms. Uh, I mean, I
1: from my admittedly perhaps biased perspective, it seems like the past three years have just been one win after another for the, the quote-unquote conspiracy theorists. So is this just like the the tide or momentum shifting in favor of what were considered to be fringe thoughts and perspectives now? There's just been enough, I, I guess, time and evidence to accrue behind those, those views being largely proven true that people are starting to the tide's starting to
0: shift. Is that what's happening? Well, it, it's very interesting because there have been so many words whose definitions have been altered over mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. the course of the last few years, and I regard conspiracy as one of them mm. because the strict definition of conspiracy is that it's a it's a criminal uh, organized uh, organized criminality conducted in secret, mm-hmm. and most of these things that people refer to as being conspiracy theories are actually. Um, they're not first of all they're, they're not really theories at all because they're statements of thing, events that happened but not just events that happened but happened out in the open uh-huh. um, the collusion is the word I like to use between governments and large corporations notably pharmaceutical corporations has been not it's never been hidden it's out in know. the public domain mm-hmm. mainstream media may not be talking about it but it's out there Huh. So when you've when you've gone and done something and then put it out on the inter- internet, so that anybody can see that you've done it, it's difficult in those circumstances to be talking about conspiracy. Right? Where's the secrecy? But in order to be able to use this label, conspiracy theorist, you need a broader definition. So they kind of drop the the in secret part of it all. Now it's it's really just referring to collusion, mm-hmm. and. So, but it's not effective. If they said, oh, Nick Hudson's a collusion theorist, well, that doesn't land. It doesn't mm-hmm. land at all because we know that companies adopt collusive practices, that they lobby governments. Uh, that, that's, that's, not, that's nothing new. You're not a crazy person if you believe that governments are lobbied by companies. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make you crazy. So you have to be able to apply the word conspiracy theorist to situations that actually don't describe conspiracies at all Otherwise, you can't make Nick Hudson look like a crazy person. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think the term conspiracy theorist was manufactured, right, in the wake of the JFK assassination, uh, I believe by the CIA, right, to just, lay again, the power of labeling, right, to be able to label people that are presenting views or perspectives that contradict the mainstream narrative. It's it's almost like the labeling is a key tool to discounting, right? You just get to put them in that bucket, whereas you don't need to listen to what they say. As soon as they bring up something that contradicts the narrative, you can just put that label on them, and you don't have to—there's no further conversation, essentially. Um, I think you see this, too, just in political discourse, right, where in the United States we have liberals and conservatives kind of at odds, and both are— both have a tendency to put the other in the bucket, right? To just put the label on them and, and let that be that. And it just it just uh short circuits any
0: any potentially fruitful dialogue. Yep. Um sure. COVID denier, anti vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, right. all of these labels are that they're they're there to do exactly that, to, to kill debate, to prevent people from thinking. Yeah. Um uh, you've smeared a person with the label and that's it. Now that's a conspiracy theorist or what's an anti vaxxer or whatever. Uh, Anti-vaxxer is another like totally stupid um, slur, you know. I'm I'm against the mandating of uh, COVID vaccines, and according to the new definition of an anti-vaxxer, that makes me an anti-vaxxer. But it's Mm -hmm. it's stupid because you know I'm also against frontal lobotomies. That doesn't Mm -hmm. make me (laughs) anti-surgery. So it's just you know inappropriate definition that then allows you technically to be categorised that way according to the, the the new uh, the new definition of, of a term that, uh, just you know, right. Um, but people of course carry around in their heads that, that label meant a different thing, uh, previously. And if, if it's generally accepted that so-and-so is, Mm -hmm. theorist, anti-vaxxer or whatever, then that he must be. So it's, it's, it's again, and it's very much part of the propaganda apparatus. And, um, I don't think yeah, it becomes increasingly difficult for anybody to describe themselves as intelligent and to not uh, be able to see that the deployment of a great many propaganda uh, weapons has been in play um, and that an an awfully large portion of everything projected by governments over the last three years has been entirely false. Mm. Yeah because the yeah anti, anti-vaxxer is such a
1: misleading label too because it does not you're actually
0: you're an anti-mandate essentially right yeah and then you might have concerns with the approval process for these vaccines as i do i don't think there should yeah. ever have been we don't think there was a basis for approving them and there was also i don't think there really was a need um <laughs> but <clears throat> it's yeah i mean so i i i think there's a very strong case against mandating anything when it comes to medical treatment Mm -hmm. so you believe that as as the world or maybe the western world believed that just a few years ago um uh, and and but that's enough if you're against mandate mandatory vaccination you're an anti-vaxxer right um these days so yeah i would be i would be that and more um and really as as my eyes have opened to the, the 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 criminal malfeasance of pharmaceutical companies in, uh, these trials that they conduct, not just for the vaccines, but for a great many, um, compounds in the pharmacopoeia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I begin to suspect that a whole lot of vaccines are being deployed that shouldn't be deployed. Mm. Yeah. So these labels, right. I mean,
1: I always come back to, and the, when we get to the edge of the complexity and nuance of these conversations, that come down to to language and words and labels, clearly we need these things, right? They're expedience right? to be able to to label a group of people and say, you know, yeah. they are whatever. It just it's it's a way for communicating more quickly and efficiently. But there seems to be a danger there, right? That we can, well, I guess several dangers. One, your definition of anti-vaxer for just just choosing a label for discussion purposes and my definition of anti vaxxer may not be the same so there's obviously a possibility of of misconsensus there but then there's also this this danger of um falling believing that that is the truth right like that th- there is some yeah. us versus them it seems very instrumental in creating this us versus them um yeah there's polarization but the reality is like i mean anti-vax is a great example we're all interconnected right like the whole yeah the whole planet so what how can we like i guess psychologically check ourselves or protect ourselves from falling prey to that tendency to just think in labels is there like it's kind of hard to even ask this question it's like how do we but debug ourselves, even though we're using these labels as expedients, but to, to know that they are expedients instead of, um, you know, falling for them as if they are the, the whole truth, something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think awareness goes a hell of a long way. I've, I've been talking about the use of labels to the inappropriate use of labels to describe the, uh, political spectra mm-hmm. uh, for almost the duration of this whole story because I thought it was a very important part. You know, my, the question I asked right from the beginning was, "Where are all the civil liberties people, the people of the left, objecting to lockdowns?" There was almost no there were almost no voices on the left mm. pointing out that uh, civil liberties were being eroded and that uh, lockdowns were an authoritarian imposition that contradicted everything they came to stand for. Um, and you know, in the same way that the people who uh, who trumpeted my body my choice when it came to the abortion mm-hmm. issue, suddenly totally capitulated to mandatory vaccination. Huh. Uh, you know, you've got these sort of uh, glaring inconsistencies with the positions people claim to occupy before COVID and the positions they actually assumed during COVID. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with a, just a very flawed uh, political spectrum description I, I object very strenuously to the idea that a liberal is the opposite of a conservative. Mm. I think those are um, you know just non-commensurate um, terms. A liberal is the opposite of, a, of an authoritarian. Mm-hmm. And if you support authoritarian policies, then you have no claim to calling yourself a liberal. right A conservative is the opposite of a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And if you if you uh, acknowledge that, then you can't really talk about a conservative unless you talk about the person in a context. Mm-hmm. So I, I can be a conservative liberal, for example, but what, I'm, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to, con, to conserve civil, civil liberties in an age when civil liberties are under attack. Mm-hmm. I'm a conservative liberal mm. in this context. Mm. In, in other contexts, I might not be that conservative. Uh, there might be certain changes mm. in the world that I would like to see um, I might stop short of revolution. I'd certainly want to see progress on this or that metric, but I wouldn't, you know. And there's another one: what the hell is a progressive? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I think almost everybody, even conservatives, want to see progress in the world, right? Yeah. So it's just another meaningless label. We've got we've got these labels being held around, meaninglessly applied, um, and it's I can hand this criticism out to both sides of the spectrum. I don't like it when uh, people refer to libertards because it seems to acknowledge that they are, in fact, liberal. That when the people they're generally right. um, criticising or haven't got a liberal bone in their body, right? It's it's allowing the ground to be occupied by the other side. So I I, I actually just refuse to apply the label liberal to people on that corner of the politic who are involved in authoritarian measures and centralized measures. There's nothing liberal about that at all and, and we must just stop using the term. Um, there's a, there's another term, there's another useful but term liberal in the sense that it it's uh, associated with that, that cluster of constructs, humanist kind of constructs where we um, occupy, uh, we, we give great precedence to the individual's preferences over the diktats of religion or culture Mm -hmm. and and that's an interesting discussion to have but it's a very different use different use of the word liberal for what it is typically um used for um so I, i think we we need to what one of the mechanisms we are the skeptical community need to adopt is to refuse to use those terms and to to recast the political spectrum To contrast liberalism with authoritarianism, which is a correct move. Mm -hmm. And to talk about the real issue, which is centralization versus decentralization. Mm, yeah, There's another one, if I can just dilate a little bit. Um, Somehow along the way, we've picked up this idea that if you are in favor of fewer disparities of income and wealth, greater equality, that you necessarily need to be in favor of bigger government mm. this is a this is a false construct you could we can conceive of mechanisms of distribution that disintermediate government it's not necessary to tax individuals and then decide how those tax proceeds should be spent you could leave that decision up to local communities or even to the individual beneficiaries of such such redistribution mm. and completely bypass government. So, uh, you know, uh, the point I'm making is not that I'm in favor of massive redistributions or that I think flattening the social topography to the extent that we're all equal is a legitimate or attractive aim. I'm not saying that at all, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying that if that is your inclination, you don't necessarily need to support large government. Right. Yeah, that that's you don't have a, to support centralization.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. It, I I see this in um. What, what this brings to mind for me is environmentalism. Actually, the, that the idea that we can preserve or better conserve, preserve, um, cultivate a healthy ecology somehow necessitates government action, and actually, I think it's quite the opposite actually what, what you really need and i'm i'm inspired in this line of thinking by rothbard's book yeah. the ethics of liberty is this you really need really strong private property and then that is the proper incentive for someone to be a, a good steward of an environment of any asset right whether it's land water etc um but without that private ownership interest there's no one to take responsibility for it right if if the land is being yeah. dumped on or mistreated Well, there's no one has an incentive to defend the asset. So, um, it's another one of those domains where I hear most, I don't, I mean, I think, I think I hear every environmentalist, they're just advocating for more government, more legislation as the, as the solution. And if anything, I think that's, that's opposite to what we actually need, which would be more integrous private property rights.
0: Yeah. I think that's one of the ingredients. The other things that help are, um, wealth, Mm you know, which also comes with strong property, yes, yeah. uh, of course. yeah. Uh, the northern hemisphere is been greening, even as the the southern hemisphere degreens, if I can use the term. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really about um people having the wherewithal to uh, pursue the, lux- the 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 relative luxury of being able to inhabit and move around in um, a pristine ecologies. Uh-huh. You're in a if you're on the breadline and living in a poor and deeply corrupt country somewhere in the southern hemisphere, the idea of protecting a national resource, a national park, in some way doesn't even enter into the equation. Um, yeah. The idea of uh, planting indigenous plants in your garden or something doesn't make any sense if you don't have a garden. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think wealth is important and generativity. Yeah, you know that's and that's and that's of course these things are all connected. Mm-hmm. You, ca- you can't really have wealth without property rights, and without uh, without property rights and wealth, you can't really have generativity. Um, uh, you need you you need all of these things together. But the the idea that development is somehow bad for ecology per se is wrong, and that's a, yes. that's a very current idea in. Right. Um, Let's say university ecology circles. Yeah,
1: no, that's a great point. Uh, that also, I would throw in there energy usage. Right, somehow we've gotten tricked into the idea that using more energy is somehow equals bad environmentalism. When it's yep. the opposite is true. Right, the more energy we actually can harness, the more rich we become, the more civilized we become, the the more standard of, standards of living improve. Um. Yeah, it's just a testament to this like war on language thing that seems yep. to keep happening. And back to the, the left as a label, right? The, that's such an interesting manifestation of this of this exact dynamic we're describing where liberals today no longer exhibit liberality at all, right? Where liberality was yep. this notion of low to no government, you know, individual autonomy, uh self-determination and now against the state. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. The, the the sovereignty of the individual serving as the cornerstone of the state was the traditional sense of liberality. Yeah, but modern liberals are just authoritarian, right? Like, <laughs> That's a,
0: yeah, they don't seek to limit, limit the power of the sovereign at all. Yeah, uh, so they the, they do not earn the label, and we must stop using it as a you know we use it as a slur word. If I've heard it used a lot as a slur slur word, you know those right. liberals. No, don't don't credit no. them with anything liberal. Yes. recapture the ground. All yourself yes. liberal. Call yourself liberal. And um <clears throat> that, that that to me is just incredibly important. Um we're we we spent the better part of a thousand years you know, charting this this gradual march yeah. from um complete sovereign power and authority, to to limitations on that power and authority. And that period was accomplished, uh, accompanied by an unbelievable mm. episode of human flourishing with poverty on the decline, uh, especially in the last 300 of those 1,000 years. Um, just a general increase in standards of living and reduction in any number of horrors that uh, right. routinely visited upon human populations and in former times, uh-huh. and we are in danger of undoing that with all these notions of um, you know, going X growth and net zero and um, population control and uh, the, these Malthusian constructs that we spoke about last time. Uh-huh. All, all of those are, um, I believe, destined to result in environmental degradation great human misery and the failure to achieve anything noble or virtuous yeah it's, it's well said well said i am just
1: reflecting on my own culture here in tennessee and um you know a lot of what a lot of people that I associate with would describe themselves as conservative, as antithetical to liberal, which, as we said earlier, is kind of this false dichotomy. Anyways, I find that to be extremely frustrating, and I think you've just captured why. Right? It's like if we seed the ground on the definitions of words, and we don't, we don't, I guess, strive to recapture. The consensus on terminology itself, like what "liberal" actually originally meant, Yep. And if, if we consider that this information warfare we're engaged in, this is inherently a terminological affair, right? It's like we're it's we're using words, right? If we can't establish consensus on the words, then we're going the whole process is going to be thrown into disarray. So if we if we cede territory on those definitions, I think it's almost effectively ceding territory to authoritarianism as a whole, right. It's we're inhibiting our ability to actually reason with one another. And when reason fails, you know, when contract fails, for instance, or consensus fails, well, we resort to conflict, like actual physical conflict. Um, so yeah, it's a very frustrating, uh, it's because you're kind of trapped within language to try and relate this whole dynamic that's going on. Um, but it's also so important to have clear, clear terms, clear definitions, consensus on definitions. Uh, but you only have language by which to kind of mediate it out. I don't know. It's very, very puzzling to me. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's Industry Day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million SATS giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc/conference and use code breedlove. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, Today, to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE.
0: Yeah, I mean, so in addition to recapturing certain terms that are now being used inappropriately um, by the other side, if you like, um, there are words that we might use to describe ourselves that we should um, broaden um, to get back to their true definition. And the word you mentioned just now, you know, the conservative, um, I think is a great example. Um, <clears throat> In in its essence, conservatism is really articulating a skepticism about people who would make wholesale changes to complex systems. Uh uh Acknowledgement of the fact that um, radical changes to complex systems often result in unforeseen consequences and destructive consequences. Yeah, and so that, that if you like, is an intellectual framework for why everybody should be conservative with respect to yeah. services, the ones which involve complex systems, society, ecology. Right. Um, yeah, so so you you said you used the word conserve earlier to in, in the context of ecologies, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Conservatives should be have as the first order concern the preservation of biomes and ecologies, because making radical changes to them um, can have unforeseen consequences. Yes. So we don't want to be revolutionaries with respect to those complex systems. We don't want to be locking people down. We don't want to be mandating treatments on a, a potentially existential level, yes. um, well, a potential existential threat. All of these these massive moves that have been made, Um, you can make a strong intellectual case against them in a very general way. doesn't have to be specific to the details of those circumstances. It's just the general principle of radical change in the face of complexity. Yes, and that's an intellectual architecture for conservatism. It doesn't mean um, the, the, ad, the adhering to some long list of uh, dogmas. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. that's not uh, entailed in that definition of conservatism. Yeah, no, great points.
1: So, you know, the again, I'm struck here that the if we're going to be ecological conservationalist, that again that's best served by conserving that ancient institution of private property you know so it's like the these things are related in a way if we if we it's something about i guess conservatism is like a respect for nature or the inertia of history you know like that you are just one tiny player in a really big play and if you think something is wrong with the way things are done at, you know, historically, traditionally, then you should really have the humility to check yourself first. Right. It It's kind of reminds me of, uh, Jordan Peterson's, uh, assertion that, you know, you need to, you should clean your room before criticizing yeah. the world kind of
0: thing, you know? Um, yeah, I use that phrase all the time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've, I've got kids, so yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, nothing to disagree with in that yeah. already
1: yeah it's it's hmm, tricky to i don't know because once people are kind of attached to their definition of terms it's like and you try to propose that maybe they have the wrong one it's the it's people get defensive i had a girl i was giving a speech yesterday on just you know history of money economics etc and um one of the audience q a's at the end is she was asking you know, what we could do basically to to conserve ecologies, as we're kind of describing here, and she was advocating for a communist solution, you know, like, oh, we don't really need private property, we don't need money, we need to get to this whole community. Like you could hear the Marxist ideology just coursing through her. And I'm like, look, I, I don't try to get very prescriptive about a lot of things, but I think I have to be prescriptive about this. That doesn't work. Like yeah. we tried that, hundreds of millions of dead, starvation, you know, atrocities at a scale we've never seen before. Um, the answer is 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 private property, right, and and individual freedom.
0: Okay. Um, can I can I can I try and inject some nuance here? Um, yes. Before he went completely crazy um, during the COVID era, Talib Nasim Nicholas Taleb, yes made a phenomenal point about the the scale variance uh-huh, uh-huh. of optimal political organization. Absolutely. And I think we may have touched on it in our last conversation, but it's perhaps worthwhile expanding to illuminate this one. Um, And I I loved his analysis, and I like to say it. I say, in in my household, I am a communist, actually. yes, Everybody gets the same quality food and healthcare, even though I have all the income and they have none. Yes, Uh, We have a completely flat uh, system where it's it's basically a communist system. There's no choice in the matter. You will get good food and good healthcare, and there are certain rules that you follow as well. Um, that's Um So at a local level, I kind of accept a communist architecture. As we expand into my neighborhood, I'm a probably a little bit, little bit of a socialist. I don't like to uh, see uh, local communities allowing um, hardship to fall upon their members and doing nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like it to be voluntary and charitable, and so maybe the um, term socialist is a bit of a push, but right. I am open, for example, to local levies in order to improve the security or, um, aesthetics of neighborhoods. Right. Um, we say, okay, we, we, you know, we are the 300 houses in this, this summer, yeah. we are, we are agreeing to impose a homeowner's levy and we're going to use it to do a certain, certain things that improve the community. And if we don't have the power to levy it in the form of a tax that's compulsory, then we will um, certainly apply coercion in terms of naming and shaming those who don't participate, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's a more socialist trajectory at a neighborhood level. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. By the time we get to provincial or state or national government, I'm really allergic to uh, kind of these these, um, centralized uh, utilitarian pushes and I become something much closer to a, a kind of libertarian, if you like. Yes. By the time we get to the World Health Organization, I'm a flaming anarchist. <laughs> I don't right. think that organization should exist in in a centralized form. Yeah. So you have the scale dependence. And I like to say to people who are, who are extreme libertarians or individualists who believe that it's all down to individual property rights that they actually know that that's not the case. Their, their instinct to rebel against the hegemony of the World Health Organization or the federal government in the United States is sound, but they're going too far when they say it's all down to individual property rights because we are social animals. Mm. We, we agree to sacrifice our our rights and uh, consumption priorities in all sorts of settings voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And we create groups that have requirements for membership that impose conditions and alienation of rights on individuals who would benefit from the group Mm -hmm. uh what what we're really saying is that those decisions need to be taking place at a far more local level Mm -hmm. so so for example i'm i'm okay with the idea that we would conserve a piece of land prevent it from being privately owned treated as a commons i'm okay with that kind of idea but i just want it to be done at a local level
1: Mm -hmm, i don't want mm -hmm. it to be
0: opposed by a bureaucrat in geneva right um or in pretoria or in washington um so so for me a, a failure to acknowledge our our fundamental social nature and our ability and uh, the, and the optimality uh, of sacrificing or suspending our rights priorities objectives uh powers in a whole huge variety of settings needs to be recognized Mm. and is an important part of sound society Um, community is important um uh, culture is important protection of those things is important these are all kind of the articulations of liberal conservatism i believe Mm. and so, I, I do become uncomfortable where when people begin to reject all notions of um, coercion, of um, sta- community standards and laws, um, of, of all types of imposition on individuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think those things, it, it is a fantastical world that you're living in if you believe that. None of them are necessary at any level of organization. I, I think they're mm-hmm. very necessary, but are best articulated at as local a level as possible. And, mm-hmm. and that con- concept that I've just described has a label, it's called subsidiarity, mm-hmm. where decision-making it, re- with respect to problems is pushed down to the most distal level of a hierarchy that is consistent with the resolution of those problems. Mm-hmm. And it was a word that was on the lips of the founders of the european union for example but uh, as a concept it was gradually just whittled away and eventually disappeared from the le- lexicon mm-hmm. it was uh, a, a an inordinately important element of catholic dogma mm-hmm. if you went back a hundred years or even 100. a bit less but it again has just disappeared mm-hmm. and I think it's an incredibly important construct, subsidiarity, Mm -hmm. and one which we need to pick up. We need to start looking at political science through the lens of subsidiarity and ask ourselves the question, how do we prevent what has happened over the last 100 years, which is that wherever you look, governments have been on a one-way trajectory in terms of their scale. They've been growing Mm -hmm. and growing and growing, and decision-making has been ever more centralized. What do we need to do In terms of the ways in which we articulate our policy polities our democracies how should we articulate them our constitutions our uh, institutional structures to enshrine and protect subsidiarity Mm -hmm. that for me is the single most interesting task ahead of us in political science Mm -hmm. people tend to get obsessed with how to avoid uh, cheating in elections or how to prevent um, pork barreling in uh-huh. legislative processes or how to prevent corruption. I don't think that's where the attention should be. Those things follow naturally from centralization and increasingly increasing scale of government. Mm-hmm. We ought to be applying our mind to how localization can be fostered, decentralization, subsidiarity, and then those problems will go away or at least moderate. Wow, well, no, it was a great spiel. A lot
1: of good points there. I, I agree. The scale variance is a very important point to highlight. Very easy to forget that we obviously relate to our families differently than we do to a nation or the world. Um, and I agree with. I think everything that you said. We might have some terminological stuff here ourselves, but. The caveat I would add is so long as those organizations that you mentioned are consensually formed, right? They're opt-in, opt-out. So in the example of uh, the home ownership community, um, homeowners association, as we call them in the US, like, sure, you can have a levy, you can have standards, you can have rules, you can have regulations, so long as the individuals in engaging or participating in that organization can leave, right? They can they can exit to another organization yes. if they're not satisfied for whatever reason. Um it gets a little it's obviously not it doesn't work if you try to hold people hostage inside of an organization, which is kind of like what the nation state's doing, right? If you try to leave the US with above a two million dollar net worth, well, there's the exit tax that's imposed upon you. So you can't even you can't even leave for a better service provider without
0: being stolen yeah. from. Um, and and the service provider is written at such a large scale that yeah. leaving is incredibly inconvenient, and that yes. that goes again to the the point of localization. So it's it's more consensual. Yeah, the smaller the unit of organization is. That's because right. You can you know it's much less of an imposition to say okay, well look, I don't know, I don't like the way people in Belgravia run their suburbs, and mm-hmm. so I'm going to move to to Musgrave. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's that's much less of an imposition than me having to uproot myself and move to a different continent. yes uh, you know the, the, and also, I think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of these things are gray um uh-huh. that if membership of groups and benefit of cultures and communities is often I think it often needs to be wrapped up with there being costs to. Going in and out because you don't want yes. people that can just flippantly be part of a group or a community when it's convenient to them or when they're sure. benefiting, just pushing off whenever there are any costs to be incurred. So you need a certain friction, yeah. Um, and any such friction is at some level uh, an imposition and limitation, a circumscription of rights. So it's it's not a black and white story. It's a it's a gray story, but uh, we've the needle has swung too far in the direction of massively centralized impositions from uh, escape from which entails enormous frictional costs. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to push back against. hmm hmm Yes, agreed. Uh, yeah, there, there has to be skin in the game,
1: right? You can't just be flighty jumping from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, and really, I think this idea of consensual membership, this is the idea underpinning the foundation of the the constitutional republic in the United States right it was you know states are sovereign right very small centralized government but that obviously has become lopsided over time we now have the bloated federal government and states kind of vying to maintain their constitutional rights um is the ideal of subsidiarity sovereign individuals like is that because that would be just individuals, again, I mean, so when you say something like the coercion necessary to, say, have a commons or a levy in a local area, I I guess the term there for me, if you have the power to say no, then it's almost not coercive because you could always just exit, right? If someone yeah. says it's, it's cutting a deal, they present terms to you that aren't acceptable, then you can just refuse the deal and then no, no transaction takes place. So it's not really... That that maybe where our terminological difference is. Like I would say that's not coercion because you have the right to leave. The coercion comes
0: where it's like no, you have to stay, and these are the rules you have to play by. Yeah, it's always gray there, and I mean, as we saw with the vaccines, you know, very often people say, well, there isn't a mandate in operation. Nobody's forcing you to take a a vaccine. But the fire you you can't get a job, you can't go to the sports match, whatever. You know, so it's always. Yeah, it's like the the old definition of pornography. You know, when you see it, you know this is right, a mandate. Right, 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 if, right. If your life is made um, incredibly awkward, yeah. I, I prefer the construct of a sovereign community with strong individuals. Mm. Um, to to me, the sovereign individual. Yes, there's a, there's a sense in which, a, a romantic sense in which, um, you know, your 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 conscience is your guide and your you uh, you you to think and speak and act um but this the sovereignty question you know the it's it's again it's a with respect to what and in what context I don't mm-hmm. think these are absolutes that you can paint they're useful thought experiments um but there are all sorts of levels of uh problem in terms of the the optimal uh scale at which solution might be attempted mm-hmm. um so if you yeah the, the, the one uh extreme story would be an asteroid hurtling towards earth um there a, a very high level of centralization might be desirable and oh uh, yes right right marshal the resources right but in terms of um loud music in your neighborhood you don't need a federal law right <laughs> um, you you can have an agreement. Yeah, it's, it's the that's scale one. of the problem too. Yes. yes, yes, yes. One community might come to a different conclusion. If you're in a, a a community dominated by students, university students, they might find that it's quite okay to have loud music at 12 o'clock and in the middle of the night. Um, but if you're in a, a retirement home, that might be completely inappropriate. You know, yeah, so, yeah. You know it it's sort of all about. Uh, uh, again thinking it through the from a subsidiarity point of view it doesn't mean not never entertaining Mm -hmm. invasions of individual sovereignty Mm -hmm. but just acknowledging that individual sovereignty is a good is a virtue Mm. and that impositions on it need to be um uh limited in in their scope and um done for very good reasons yeah that's
1: a great point it's definitely not a it's a bright line in the intellectual sphere but in the messiness of real life it's definitely more of a continuum um and yeah there's there's kind of like hard coercion and soft coercion and where do you draw the line yeah it's I, I agree with all of that um okay maybe just one last topic and i'll let you jump off here the, looks like they are hurtling down the pipeline we have Fed now coming in July here in the United States this is not a CBDC but it looks to be kind of the back-end administrative layer upgrade necessary to roll out a CBDC we're already seeing propaganda in the US because there's been enough a lot of politicians have spoken out about this actually like the dangers Uh, recently it was, it was, uh, Kennedy who I think announced his presidential intent to run for president in 2024, speaking out against CBDCs. And we've since seen kind of counter propaganda from the fed saying, Oh, you know, fed now is not a CBDC. It's for your benefit and blah, blah, blah. The whole typical song and dance. Um, what are you seeing from your, your
0: perspective on the, the specter of programmable CBDCs? Well, first of all, Kennedy would get my vote if I had one in America. Um, Hmm. I think he's done more than any um, uh, elder, uh, can we call him that, political elder, to bring to light the the ravages of this this COVID policy and the extremely dangerous territory that we're heading into with uh, governments and their authoritarian overreach. Um, But... Yeah, what's dangerous is not so much uh, digital currencies or even uh, necessarily central bank, central bank digital currencies. It's programmable central bank digital currencies that are the real risk that I think Kennedy is pointing to. Mm. Now, if I trusted the social contract to be upheld, um, I would say we can rely on our constitutions and um, uh, legal precedent to ensure that governments will not use the essential bank digital currencies to punish political opposition and dissidents, mm-hmm. or to prevent people from exercising their free will with respect to their consumption choices. Mm-hmm. That they wouldn't turn off the bank account access of the Canadian truckers, right. or of Nick Hudson, because he said bad things about the World Health Organization. Um, If I had that trust in the social contract, then I would probably be much less exercised, because I think principles in normal law and constitutional law would protect people from governments who would use currencies for that purpose. But I no longer have such faith. We've seen that the social contract has been torn up and destroyed, and needs to be reestablished in one way or another. And so, for that reason, I, I absolutely agree that central bank digital currencies are nothing but threat and that they ought to be fought and pushed back against in every way possible until such time as we have a restoration of the social contract and copious and abundant institutional protections against the misuse of such instruments by governments. Because mm-hmm. that misuse is preordained. They are planning it. It's intentioned. We had that spectacular um uh uh hoax call, the pranking of um Lagarde, Christine Lagarde. What's mm-hmm. her name? Christine Lagarde, yeah, the yep. um E C B chair Yeah. She she was talking about the, the 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 currencies are coming and they are gonna be uh programmable and yes people will be worried that they're going to be used uh to um prevent certain types of transaction and so on and she was acknowledging in effect that they would be she's not worried that they are going to be she's worried that people will be alarmed about that Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so it's it's coming and and we need to be fighting against this I, i mean I know a lot of your audience will be hopeful that private currencies such as Bitcoin and so on will, um, mm-hmm. uh, sort of do the, uh, uh, subvert these mm-hmm. central bank digital currencies. I would love that to be true. I'm not sure that, that, um, they're going to survive regulatory constraint and imposition. Um, I'd love for somebody to explain to me why a concern that they, that they won't survive is misplaced. Mm. I, I I certainly don't agree that the um, currencies need to be administered by governments. Mm-hmm. Not something that I agree with. Um, so, yes, I, I, I think it's the number one issue and the one that's sort of slipping under the radar way too much. Because um, we've got the Bank of England is committed to this trajectory. We've got the Fed in the United States and the European Central Bank. Um, there's been talk in many countries, South African Reserve Bank, um, Nigeria has uh, actually had a failed attempt already. India had a failed attempt. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to start being very careful and talking about what's coming. Because I, mm-hmm. I think initially it will be presented in a very innocuous form. It will be the thin, in, thin edge of a wedge. Mm-hmm. It'll be, there will be certain categories of transaction that can only be completed Um, through the mechanism of a central bank digital currency. It'll be a minority of transactions that perhaps will only affect certain people. Maybe, you know, food stamps or universal basic income will be administered through a central bank digital currency platform. Mm -hmm. But then that'll grow over time and you'll see um, an increasing subset of transactions being caught in the central bank digital currency net. And before you know it, life will be impossible Mm. Without touching CBDCs, and so I, I think we've got to be extraordinarily uh, concerned and 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 push back very hard at every level possible. Um, it's 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 got to be done.
1: I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I just don't think. I would maybe go even a step further that. You know you said if the social contract were intact that maybe these would be acceptable but I think the existence of a CBDC or even a central bank sort of is an inherent violation of the social contract um at least maybe not on its face but it at least opens that chink in the armor where the social contract can be readily rescinded through you know counterfeiting of currency effectively um but yeah, I agreed. It's it's not widely understood enough and we need to push back against it with all we've got. 100%. Nick, man, this has been another fun conversation. Uh, really enjoy your your big thinking and the way you articulate these ideas. I think you do a really good job of it. Um, and yeah, I just I get a lot out of these conversations. So thank you again.
0: Oh. Yeah, I enjoy coming onto your show. It's, uh, we, I, we seem to have a, a great way of getting a freewheeling conversation going without drifting too far away and starting to talk nonsense. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, thanks. I've, I've really enjoyed this one. Of course. Happy to do it. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, d- www.pandata.org. Um, I've, uh, a couple of months ago, I've been unbanned on Twitter. So you can follow me on Twitter at, at Nick Hudson CT. Um, and the handle for our social media accounts at Pandata is always the same at Pandata, at Pandata nineteen nine. Um, so yeah, follow us there, um, and, uh, look forward to the next one. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nick.